You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. I'm glad everyone has joined us for this episode of the podcast. We are going to look at bubbles through an excellent framework for studying these financial euphorias. We will also attempt to answer if bubbles are good or not. Joining us today is William Quinn and John Turner to discuss their book, Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles. Um, before they uh, join me here to discuss, just a little background. Uh, William is a lecturer in finance at Queen's University of Belfast. His research is focused on historical stock markets, stock market bubbles, as we'll talk about today, and, and market corners. John Turner is a professor of finance and financial history at Queen's University of Belfast. He is also the author of Banking and Crisis that was published in 2014. He is currently the editor of the Economic History Review. John was the Hublin Norman Fellow at the Bank of England in 2003 and the Alfred D. Chandler Fellow at the Harvard Business School in 2010. He is also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. William and John, thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome, Cole. It's lovely to be with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank, thank you for joining me. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, you guys are the first, uh, you know, first folks from Northern Ireland to join me, and that's quite a hot topic right now. So I think... Uh, We'll, 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 we'll make sure to press some hot topics in our discussion today, too. So just to start it out, we'll, you know, I, I have a sense of what you're going to say, but I'd love to have you explain to our listeners what, what inspired you, you guys to write this book and write it together. So, so, so maybe if I, I could start uh, on this one and then uh, Will can, can, can chip in, uh, Cole. Um, I've been interested in bubbles uh, for 20 plus years uh, now. Uh, I'm actually old enough to have, have taught an MBA class during the, the dot-com uh, mm-hmm. bust. And I remember uh, arguing with my students who were all buying uh, internet stocks, um, you know, j- during uh, 1999 that, uh, you know, I was saying to them, this is going to go, <laughs> I've seen this before, I'm a financial historian, <laughs> this is going to go wrong, guys. And they kept saying, no, no, no. They came back after uh, the, the Easter break or the spring break and uh, they had lost a lot of money and they came back to class with their tail between their legs. So it was really at that point that I got really interested in bubbles. And then over the years, I've had various PhD students uh, work in bubbles and I've, I've worked with several of those uh, over the years. And one of those, uh, and I'm going to hand off to Will here, uh, was Will. Yeah, so my PhD um, was on the British bicycle mania, the, the most adorable bubble, as you put it. <laughs> um, so I, I spent three years on that. And I was coming to the end, and John suggested writing uh, a book about financial bubbles, a history of financial bubbles. And we thought there was really a gap for it because uh, of the books out there about financial bubbles, the, the two that most people are familiar with 
are Charles Mackay, uh, Extraordinary Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds, uh, which is about 170 years old uh, and is a lot of fun and very instructive, but also you could describe it as fictional. Most of what he says or a lot of what he says just it isn't really true, even if it's um, you know, true in the way that great fiction is true. It, it tells you a lot about the world and markets and how they work, but it's not a real history of financial bubbles. And also it's 150 years old. A lot of the most interesting bubbles have happened since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is Mania's Panics and Crashes uh, but by Charles Kindleberger. Mm-hmm. Another excellent book. Um, but again, that's the first edition of that was 50 years old. And the amount of research, particularly quantitative, more scientific research that's taken place in those 50 years mean that we, we felt it really needed an update. We needed some kind of update on Kindleberger's history that, that ties all of this research together. When I think I think your book has a special place in that because the other books that I think of too are obviously John Kenneth Galbraith's A Short History of Financial Euphoria would fall into kind of the psychology of that. And then I even think of like Ed Chancellor's book, Devil Takes the Hindmost, which is, you know, kind of an amalgamation of storytelling in these bubbles. Um, so uh, let me, let's just kind of jump in. So y- you can, um, you push back on a major thesis that, that most people carry with them about bubbles um, in, in the investment community is what I'm speaking to. I'm um, the opening of book. You point out that not all bubbles are economically destructive and then and that some have positive social consequences. Uh, t- teach teach our listeners a way that a bubble can be useful. Okay, so I'll take this question. Um, so the, the, the first thing you need to ask is why are bubbles seen as a bad thing? Like why do they cause problems? And when do they cause problems? The, the difference in fallout from a bubble varies very widely. So the reason people think of bubbles as bad thing is because they remember uh, the housing crash of 2008. It's the, the sure. almost the defining economic event of our lifetimes is the resulting financial crisis from that. And the problem there wasn't necessarily that there was a bubble. It was the exposure of financial institutions. So whenever the, the entire financial system is on the hook for a bubble, uh, that's when they're going to start causing problems. If you look at other bubbles, and typically they're bubbles that aren't remembered so well, like the bicycle mania, um, where the the financial system isn't so involved, the macroeconomic effects there just aren't anywhere near as severe. So straight away you're thinking, what are the effects here? And one of the effects then, once you've ruled out this uh, large macroeconomic depression or recession, One of the effects is that you get lots of money flowing into particular companies, say irrational amounts of money flowing into particular companies. Uh, And what types of companies are these? Well, most recently, people would say it's electric vehicle companies. So to say that the electric vehicle bubble is a bad thing is to say that it's a problem that companies manufacturing electric vehicles are finding it really, really easy and really cheap to raise lots of money. And already from a a social uh, environmental place, you can see, well, maybe that's not necessarily the case. And when we look back in history, uh, we see the same thing. We see 
dot, the dot com bubble, where there's you know a short recession in the US, lasting less than a year. Uh, but you find it very easy if you're a technologically innovative company, you find it very easy to raise money. You go back to the bicycle mania, and a lot of those companies went on to become household names. They were, for their time, very innovative. Uh, Dunlop, for example, Dunlop Pneumatic Tire, was one of the largest companies during the British bicycle mania, making mm -hmm. the first modern pneumatic tires. They found it very easy to raise a lot of money because there was a bubble. And that's why we would say, and it's not just our, our argument, um, others have made it, but... Uh, we would argue that some of these bubbles are actually useful. For us, we, we actually start with the metaphor of the bubble and we think it's the wrong metaphor. Uh, and so mm -hmm. we have gone with fire as, as the metaphor for the bubble. And we'll maybe get into this in our conversation about uh, the, the, the bubble triangle, uh, which equates to the fire triangle that we, we've come up with. But yeah. fire can be both destructive, okay, and as Will said, you know, when uh, when bank leverage is involved, those those types of bubbles tend to be very destructive. But fires yeah. can also sort of revitalize ecosystems. So mm -hmm. you know, some savannas, some ecosystems, fire actually is a key component of revitalizing those ecosystems. So it's it's, it's useful. Uh, it's not always destructive, and so the same is true. We think with with bubbles. Sure. Well, before we get to that, because that was actually, uh, I had that coming up here, uh, two questions out. But my, my next question I want to ask you, because you kind of, you quickly talk about this at the beginning of your book. And I, I find it interesting because um, we always joke that price regulates price um, in, in, in investing. Um, how do you define the price action that comes with a bubble? Because you guys have a little discussion on this early in your book. So, so one of the issues with Kindleberger uh, is that he, he doesn't really define a, a bubble as such. He, he says it's an upward movement of prices followed by mm -hmm. a, a downward movement. So we, we seek to sort of parameterize that. Okay. And the way that we conceptualize a bubble is if there's a 100% uh, increase in the, in the asset price followed okay. by a 50% collapse over a period of you know, two to three years, that for us looks like a bubble, and that's the criteria we used to, you know, for the bubbles that we actually include in the, in the book. Okay, and that's helpful, yeah, because like you said, a lot of this, people tend to be like, they tend to like to be vague when we're talking about bubbles versus, and I think your book does a great job of, of laying out a framework for this, so let's jump to your framework. Um, like you guys explained, you're looking at this as a fire chief or a fire inspector would um, in the aftermath of a fire, um, so can you explain your, the three sides to your bubble triangle and then kind of go through each for our listeners? Yeah, sh sure. Maybe I'll, t I'll take this question. Um, so the bubble triangle, which is a central sort of explanatory framework that we have in the book, uh, is, is akin to the fire triangle in chemistry. So from high school chemistry, people will remember uh, you need three things for, for a fire. Uh, you need heat, you need oxygen, you need fuel. And you then need a spark to get the heat going and to set off the, the chemical uh, reaction. So heat, oxygen and fuel. And so in, in the bubble triangle, we say there's three necessary conditions for a bubble to happen. Uh, so first of all, the equivalent of the fuel, which is the money or credit. And so by this, we mean uh, either very low interest rates. Uh, and so when you get low interest rates, you get investors reaching for yield. Um, Walter Bajet, who uh, was a former editor of The Economist in the 19th century and a, a famous author, uh, most f famously he wrote uh, uh, Lombard Street, which is like mm -hmm. a, a pamphlet for, for, for central bankers today. Um, 
he said John Bull, which is uh, a personification of, 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 of the typical Englishman, can withstand many things, but he can't withstand 2%. Uh, in other words, uh, as soon as interest rates hit 2%, uh, you know, the typical investors are reaching for yield. But yeah. there's also then this idea of being able to, uh, to, to borrow to buy the bubble asset. And so uh, that's also part of the fuel of, of the bubble. The next side of, of the bubble triangle then is, is the oxygen or the marketability. So this is the ease with which uh, a, an asset can be bought and sold. And over the 300 years that we look at, there is a trend, and the trend is this, that things have become more marketable over time. So we have removed legal restrictions on the, the ability to buy and sell assets, uh, particularly financial assets. We also have removed technological constraints. And so uh, associated with all these bubbles that we observe, we see this sort of step change taking place in, in marketability. So we've had our, uh, our money and credit, uh, marketability. And the third side then is the, the speculation side. Now, speculation is always present in financial markets, but what happens in bubbles is you get a lot of amateur or novice speculators coming into the market. People who've never bought and sold financial assets or land or, or houses as investments before. Uh, and also, you might think professional investors could sort of bet against them and short the market. But what we observe in a lot of bubbles as well is that there's this uh, inability to short the market. It becomes there's very difficult to, to short in, in, in these periods. Um, so marketability, speculation, uh, money and credit. And the spark that sets it all off, it differs. Okay, In some cases, the spark comes from uh, from new new radical new technology. So that gets speculators yeah. excited. Uh, or in most cases, actually, and what, what we find with these historical bubbles, it's it's politics, it's the political system, it's it's government policy that triggers the uh, the speculation. So that, in a nutshell, is the the bubble triangle. Sure. So let, let's start out by talking about um, your the bubble of seventeen twenty, and I think um, th th this chapter you do an excellent job of really tying what was going on across uh, Europe, both on, on both sides of the channel. Um, can you explain to our listeners some of the precursors uh, to the bubble of 1720 that was going on in the governments of the Western world? Right, yes. So the 1720 bubble, uh, this is a, a really a, a, a political story. I would say the most political bubble. It's all about how these governments uh, connected to each other. They were rivals at the time. This is the, the British, French and Dutch governments. Um, and they'd just been at war. Uh, it's known as the War of Spanish Succession, uh, sparked by a succession crisis uh, in the Spanish crown. Um, and what, what was interesting about this war was that it was really the, the first time that the, the countries fighting the war were using these new state-of-the-art fundraising mechanisms where they're issuing large amounts of debt uh, which is to some extent tradable uh, in order to uh, fund the war effort and thereby taking on large amounts of debt. So when this war ends, uh, it, it ends with uh, various governments burdened with this large amount of government debt uh, and particularly Britain and France who are rivals, they're worried about each other uh, mm -hmm. and for them high government debt was an existential threat. So if you have a lot of government debt 
and investors worry that you're not going to be able to pay it back, that makes it very expensive to raise money. And in particular, it makes it very expensive to raise money in order to pay for war. So if you're invaded and you, you suddenly need to raise an army, you're not able to do that. Um, so years after the, the this war Spanish succession, say 1715 to 1720, these countries are scrapping around, desperately trying to find a way to fix this debt problem. And what they eventually land upon, uh, st starting with the French government, is this large monetary scheme to convert debt into equity in a company, which isn't technically a part of the government, but has government support. And this was the Mississippi Company. Um, now, the way that this benefits the government is that the Mississippi Company pays them a reduced rate of interest on that debt. Uh, which makes it very difficult in theory to sell the shares of those companies or to convince investors to trade their debt for that equity because it's a, a self-evidently bad deal, right? You're, um, you've got this very high-yielding government debt, yielding, say, 6 or 7% a year in some cases, uh, and you're being asked to trade it for a company whose main asset is just you know, the right to receive a lower rate of interest in that debt. Uh, how do you convince them to do that? Uh, and the guy they get in, John Law, comes up with this solution of creating the expectation of capital gains. So you're earning 7% a year on your debt, but if you swap it for shares in this company, maybe the shares in that company are going to rise 500% in the next two months, and that's just going to completely dwarf uh, any kind of capital gains or any kind of profit that you would expect it from just holding on to your debt. And this is why we call the chapter the invention of the bubble. This scheme was essentially creating a bubble deliberately to convince investors to part with their liquidative debt. And uh, in France, the scheme blows completely, uh, it just blows up, it becomes completely uncontrollable. It ends up taking over the entire French economy. And whenever it collapses, uh, in order to uh, fix it and regain credibility, they end up restoring their debt to the uh, exact levels that it had been prior to the scheme. Uh, at the same time, Britain is uh, looking at what's going on in France and considering it a threat, and they copy it with what we call the South Sea Bubble. This is controlled much more effectively, uh, and as a result, they managed to execute an almost identical scheme successfully, which reduces their debt long term. And as we say in the book, this has been linked to the defeat of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, because that's how long this fundraising advantage lasts for. Okay. Uh, now, in the case of John Law, though, he came in and initially just wanted to set up effectively a central bank. Um, so the auspices of what he arrived with wasn't crazy. Right. Yeah. A lot of what he did wasn't crazy. Um so his original proposal was for a general bank, which, as you say, just operated much like a central bank. Uh, it issued paper money, um, which I think may have been the first paper money issued in France. Mm -hmm. And certainly the idea of paper money was rejected uh, after 1720 as a crazy John Law idea. But obviously from today's standpoint, we say it's just paper money. 
it's yeah. uh, it's a pretty sensible um, monetary idea. Uh, to be clear, John Law is considered a genius. He's considered one of the great financial theorists um, of all time. Uh, but you know, his immediate effect on France was the, the creation of this extremely destructive financial bubble. So, yeah. Well, and I also in, in your guys' writing, it seems like the coziness of that general bank with the Mississippi company was where the problem was. In other words, it wasn't bad that someone was speculating. It was bad that the the central bank and the speculation vehicle were de facto the same thing. Um, they were handing, it was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, and uh, John Law tried to um, peg the uh, price of uh, Mississippi shares to the paper money, which created this um, inflationary problem which uh, I saw some shades of in the Terra Luna collapse last week, uh, where this peg where, as you said, it's Robin Peter to pay Paul, it's clearly unsustainable, just, um, you, you know, leads to the devaluation of one thing or the other. Well, and to, to follow on your idea of inflation, you know, he, he assumed that he could just increase the money supply and it would bail the shares out in effect. Um, I guess... You know, you you mentioned Badgett earlier, who obviously is really the you know the modern father of the Bank of England. Um, using using what we're looking at and talking about with law, and let's just say using the framework of Badgett as well, who who said that you know the the Bank of England should be the lender of last resort. The question is at what price? Um, do you think there's a serious like policy question to be asked? Um, you know, using say the Federal Reserve as an example, um, we were the lender of last resort in in the spring of twenty. And the question could be asked, but once again, at what price did we end up just bailing out assets not dissimilar to what John Law was trying to do with his own company? So, so thinking of, of you know, this idea of you know, the, the role of the central bank in acting as a lender of last resort, mm -hmm. um, Bayesit's main plea to the Bank of England when he, he wrote Lombard Street in 1873 was, tell us up front that you're going to be a lender of last resort. Uh, stop this sort of uh, ambiguity about your about sure. your role in the financial system, uh, and, and even to this day, that ambiguity still exists. And, and I mm -hmm. think central banks want that ambiguity because it, it it deals with the moral hazard problem that arises. You know that that. Uh, banks take too much risk, investors take too much risk, and then expect the central bank to turn around and pump liquidity into the system uh, and to bail them out. Uh, and so there is that sort of uh, need with, within central banking, I think, to have that ambiguity. But mm -hmm. one of the things that we explore uh, in the book is, is this move towards uh, the, the Greenspan put. <laughs> Sure. Uh, the underwriting of, of, of financial markets. And, and that's where we're at today with, with central banks. And that creates all sorts of uh, dangers for, you know, bubble creating bubbles in, in, in financial markets and in housing markets, because all of a sudden, you know, if the central bank's going to come along and, and, and bail us out, then we take more risk. Yeah, we, we had, um, I don't know if you guys have read a copy of The Rise of Kerry by um, uh, Tim and Jamie Lee and Kevin Coldiron, um, but they talk a lot about that. They 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 call it a carry trade, is what they call it, and it follows a sawtooth pattern as they always do. So I, I completely agree on that. Now, what ended up happening to John Law in the end, as you guys write? So, John Law was sent into exile. Uh, he uh, became so unpopular and so toxic that the French government had to sneak him out of the country. Okay. Um, where he, I'm not sure where he lived the rest of his life out. Um. But 
yeah, he, he was used as a scapegoat, but perhaps not quite as effectively as the government would have liked. Sure. And maybe that's a warning to anybody out there that we're watching as we watch as, you know, things unwind right now. Um, now, in, using England, you know, like you point out, England very much looked at what France did and said, hey, you know, we, if they, the French can do it, we can do it. Um, and, 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 and actually, as you guys point out, they did it better. There, there was a good social benefit to the government in the end. Right. Yes. Yeah. So um, their scheme, you could describe it as picking out the important parts of John Law's scheme. Uh, this was a proposal that was put to them by uh, the South Sea Company. Uh, and it, the basics of it were pretty much exactly the same. They were uh, offering to take on the government's debt um, in exchange for equity and then receive a lower interest rate on that debt. Um, the South Sea Company didn't really do anything important. It was a, a failed slave trading firm at that point. Whereas the Mississippi Company actually performed a lot of important economic activity that, that it could point to and say, this is where we're going to make enough money to, to make up the difference. So it, it was, if anything, an even more obviously bad trade for the holders of British government debt. But they were also successfully able to uh, create a bubble just to engineer this rapidly increasing price that convinced almost all of the holders of this government debt to, to make the trade. And the important thing for the British government, I think, conclusion we come to, is that the key difference was that Britain was a democracy. And because Britain was a democracy, uh, you could have a peaceful regime change in which the previous regime are used as a scapegoat. And that does two things. Firstly, if you have a scapegoat, there's less pressure to uh, give people their money back, which is what happened in France. And this is something that we very noticeably didn't see after 2008 in early bubbles whoever was responsible for you know causing investors to lose their money uh, was often treated very harshly very unfairly after 2008 that doesn't happen at all um, and when what the advantage to the government was was that having a scapegoat means you don't have to necessarily make people good again to some extent uh, that satisfies them and the other difference is that uh, it meant they could credibly commit not to repeating the scheme again because this is why you don't just default on your debt, right? You know if you go around defaulting on your debt or saying we'll give you lower interest payments on your debt, people aren't going to lend you money the next time. Because there's been a regime change, the British government can quite fairly say that wasn't us, that was the last guys. And for that reason, people are still willing to lend to them. It doesn't damage their reputation. Uh, so I think this is a very rare success, managing to significantly reduce the payments you're making on your outstanding debt without increasing your cost of future borrowing. And that's why this is a bubble we, we look at and say that this was kind of a success. Especially, yeah, especially for the government. Um, or or a, a one way to think about it is the transfer of uh, money from investors to the coffers of the of the British government. So using, um, you guys start to comment on something in this and it comes back in other discussions you have on bubbles is the role of media. Um, and we'll talk about this with, uh, with the other two that we talk about, but, um, what was the role of the media in the South seas bubble in Britain? So the media, uh, during the South sea bubble, uh, Britain did have a free press. So for France, the answer was fairly simple. 
the French government was controlling what was in the newspapers and they wouldn't mm-hmm. allow anyone to say anything bad about John Law's scheme. With the South Sea bubble, you have a very vibrant um, free press. You have competing newspapers like the London Journal, the, the Daily Courant, uh, the London Gazette, um, which you know, had been a monopoly but had previously expired. Um, and they're all saying different things. You also have a lot of pamphlets going around. It's a very active um, environment of passing around pamphlets and reading and learning about the South Sea Bubble that way. Uh, the problem was that no one really knew who to trust. Uh, so you look back on some of these pamphlets and some of them are excellent. So Lord Hutchison, who was an MP, just explained all of the reasons why this South Sea Company was offering a bad trade and the whole thing was going to go south. But you also have lots of other pamphlets floating about that, um, how would you say it? They sort of baffle the reader with with bullshit. Mm -hmm. They're almost pretending to explain this um, complex debt-to-equity conversion scheme uh, in a way that makes it look as positive as possible. And you're not quite sure whether these were people who really believed it, whether they're true believers, or whether they're simply um, you know, being paid by the promoters of the scheme or they have some ulterior motive. So there's a lot of ambiguity, and essentially there's an information environment which, similar to today, is almost too rich. There's just uh, too much information out there for mm-hmm. uh, investors at the time to you know, learn the truth. Sure. And and you guys take it further. Um, you bring up Peter Garber, uh, who argued that the South Seas bubble was uh, he, he, he says that, you know, in kind of an efficient, efficient market uh, discussion, um, it was sane. In other words, what went on in price was actually it made sense based on the potential prospects of the business. And, and you guys argued directly against that. Right. So um, Peter Garber's argument is that essentially that the South Sea bubble had raised a very large amount of money uh, and that it was reasonable for investors to believe that the company would put that money to good use. Uh, the company is so good at raising this money and has all of this capital, uh, could potentially invest it in something useful. Uh, well, we point out that this becomes circular, right? Um, it's a kind of circular argument that came up a lot during the dot-com bubble. People would say mm-hmm. these internet companies have some great strengths, they're brilliant at raising capital. But if they're brilliant at raising capital, that implies that if you give them more capital, you're not necessarily getting a very good deal. Uh, so we, we felt this was unfalsifiable, not very well developed. There's not a lot of detail in uh, what Garber writes. Garber is primarily primarily focused on the tulip mania. So he provides a lot of detail on uh, the tulips in, um, in the Netherlands. Uh, but with respect to the South Sea bubble, there's not a lot of detail on what types of projects would they have been looking at? If you're an investor today, you're not going to accept that. You're going to look deeper and say, okay, they've got all this money. What are they going to use it for? Are they capable of uh, investing that in useful projects? There's no evidence at all that the South Sea bubble was even looking for these types of projects. Uh, so for that reason, we, we don't really buy it. Uh, we, we conclude that the South Sea bubble wasn't a good investment at its peak. It's not simply a crash that was unforeseeable. It's something that uh, a fully informed investor would have fully expected to go to go wrong. 
using using the current mania that we're ending, um, do you guys see any similarities between Garber's argument uh, of that and you know? And the, I think the common pushback we hear is as we watch you know technology companies struggle, people will say, "Yeah, but look at how much money sits in the hands of venture capitalists." Do you? I mean, in other words, it's a it's a fundraising or it's a a, a funding shortfall uh, tool for businesses. But d- does that not address, like you said, there's no underlying economic return in many of these cases to sustain? Right, yeah, that, that's how it's looked to me for a long time, that uh, venture capitalists might simply be looking to cash out, looking to generate enough hype to take this to market and then cash out bef- long before anything economically, and economically useful is produced. Which is fine if you look at the, the dot com bubbles. Uh, the, the dot com bubble. A lot of those companies take a long time to make a profit, but when they do, they make enough money to, to justify that initial investment. But certainly, that that argument that first of all that these companies are good at raising money, uh, but also that look all of these really smart people are investing them. Uh, that's something that's come up again and again and again. I, I think it's it's at best incomplete. You know, if lots of very clever people are investing in something that suggests that maybe you should have a look at it and look at how useful it is but whenever the only argument you're hearing for something being useful is that lots of people are investing in it, lots of smart people are investing in it and you don't hear anything convincing about how this company or asset is going to produce anything useful that that's a bit of a red flag that uh, there's a free rider problem everyone is depending on everyone else to uh, to do the actual research I'm gonna to have to take you guys on the road with me because that just sounds too sensible. Um, so, so uh, you argue you argue the consequences uh, of the South Sea bubble in England were you know was very little. Um, obviously, some investors were affected by it. Um, there were some bankruptcies that you noted in London, um, uh, but you talk about the disappearance of the joint stock company being really the biggest detrimental effect. C- can you explain? You know what the joint stock company was, and then and then what came after that regime. This goes back to the the origins of where we where we get the word bubble, um, because the South Sea Company was wanting to convert all of this uh, government debt in, into equity in the South Sea Company. Uh, they they wanted to, to 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 knock out the competition because on the market there were lots of uh, what were called bubble companies uh, setting up and taking capital away from the the debt conversion scheme. And so the government wanted to put an end to that. So it passed something called uh, the Bubble Act. Uh, and this Bubble Act essentially prevented uh, you know, limited liability companies setting up uh, with, with tradable shares. And so all of a sudden, uh, companies can't establish and, and float their shares on the stock market and, and, and have those shares traded. Uh, and this lasted, so the Bubble Act uh, was dismantled in 1825. So it lasted for 100 years. And it, it set the development of, of the modern corporation uh, back 100 years in, in, in the UK as well. Uh, but having said that, uh, you know, Britain went through uh, the Industrial Revolution without, you know, having, uh, you know, the joint stock company or the, the mm-hmm. limited liability company in place. Uh, and it went through this enormous uh, period of economic growth without these institutions. But yes, yeah, certainly uh, one of the after effects of the, the you know, the, the South Sea bubble was a sort of regulatory clampdown on, on firms uh, having, you know, firms setting up as limited companies with, with tradable shares. 
So let's pivot to uh, to the Australian land boom because, as you guys point out, they didn't have that kind of restrictions. Um, you know, they they could have limited liability companies for for this bubble. And it, and and like I said earlier, this reminds me the most of the subprime debacle that we had here in the United States. Um, but there were some big distinctions to it. Um, teach us a little bit about this financial euphoria through your bubble uh, triangle framework. Yeah, so, so uh, this, uh, this uh, property bubble uh, or land bubble that took place uh, in Australia in uh, the 1880s, we can think of Australia in the 1880s uh, as an emerging economy today, that's uh, how we would mm-hmm. regard it. And um, the three sides of the bubble triangle were, were all at play uh, in Australia. Um, so we have historically low interest rates uh, at that time. We have very easy credit. The The Australian banking system in the 1880s was the one of the most liberal banking systems we have ever seen anywhere and at any time on planet Earth. Um, and so these banks were uh, lending to, uh, to property companies and to property developers um, uh, who were building uh, houses in large Australian cities, Melbourne, Adelaide, uh, Sydney, for example. Um, so. so there was also a real increase in, in, in marketability uh, at this time. So marketability, first of all, in in the land market, because what, what Australians did at this time was they created what was known as the quarter acre plot. And if you go to any large uh, Australian city today, uh, you'll see that Australians have this preference to live in the suburbs on their quarter acre plot. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is because they all came from these really horrible cities in, in, in England and Scotland and Ireland. Uh, and, and they moved to these, these really, this really beautiful location and they all wanted their suburban plot. And so this is where the quarter acre plot was invented. And so land was parceled up and could then easily be traded. Uh, and you get this standardization uh, taking place within the land market. You also have at this time uh, a whole bunch of property companies being set up in the stock exchange. And when I say stock exchange, I mean stock exchanges, plural. Uh, mm-hmm. In Melbourne alone in the 1880s, there were six stock exchanges uh, trading the shares of these property companies. These property companies were uh, speculating on land. They were also borrowing uh, quite heavily. They were part banks, part property speculator, really bad combination. Uh, and so that's on the marketability side. And then in the speculation side, everyone uh, who had any money was speculating in land. They were speculating in property. They were speculating in shares. And so, uh, you know, we, 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 we document in the chapter just the, the frenzy that was taking place on the stock exchange and, and then in the land and the property markets in, in Australia. And this is all sparked uh, by politicians because politicians at this time, again, really bad combina- combination. You don't want your politicians to be property developers and property speculators. They had a lot of skin in this game. And therefore, they deregulated the, the banking system so the banking system could push more money towards uh, you know, the property market and the property development. And so just to give you an example of, of, of how much property prices uh, increased. So take, take Melbourne, for example. The, the annual return in the 1880s on suburban land, these quarter acre plots, as an investment asset, was 40% per annum in the 1880s. Wow. Uh, you know, so a huge, huge return was was, was being generated. Uh, land prices in, in, in Melbourne between 1882 and 1888 went up 10 times. So suburban land prices. Uh, after 1888, they, they collapse, they, they fall by 60, 70%. Uh, 
House prices uh, in Australia double in in the eighteen eighties, and then again collapse, and 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 it's it's decades before they 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 actually recover, and when this whole thing unwinds, uh, which takes about two or three years, Australia in eighteen ninety three has the largest banking collapse we have ever seen in history. Half of the Australian banks, there's 28 banks at the time, 14 of them collapse. And that's about half in, in terms of assets, that's about half mm -hmm. of the uh, Australian banking system. Sometimes. So huge devastation. Uh, and the devastation that that you know, brings to the Australian economy, it, it's, it causes a deeper recession than the Great Depression in the United States. It causes a longer recession than the, 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 uh, uh, the, the Great Depression in the United States. This really hurts the Australian economy. And it's, it's, it's pretty much just before World War I, before the Australian economy has recovered from this, this property collapse. Well, and I think you pointed out it really well in your book that uh, part of the problem with the collapse was that this was all funded on other people's money or really capital coming from the UK, which is really a distinct feature. In, in many respects, it reminds me of, say, like an Iceland or an Ireland um, prior to the, you know, 07 to 09 episode where it was big foreign money flooding the banks, um, paying very high deposits. Yeah, like, so... so you know, put some sort of f figures on this. Uh, you know, in 1890, uh, a quarter of the deposits from, uh, a, or a quarter of the deposits in the Australian banking system were coming from the UK. Now, the, the, the cool thing about these deposits and the reason why it took this thing took so long to unwind is that these were usually term deposits of like one year, two mm -hmm. years. Uh, but these Australian banks and also then the property companies that were uh, doing a lot of the development work, they were advertising in English and Scottish and Irish newspapers, trying to get depositors and trying to get money from uh, from the UK. And it's really only then when uh, something happens in Argentina. So uh, Bearings Bank, a large investment bank in London, uh, lo loses a lot of money in Argentina, comes to the Bank of England for uh, assistance. And it's at that point in time, people begin looking at other emerging markets, uh, you know, British investors, and they start looking at Australia and say, right, we're not sending any more money to Australia. And so the, the money flows all of a sudden stop, and that's when uh, the whole banking system then uh, implodes in Australia. So the media was obviously making money off of advertising, like you pointed out, for these land development companies. Was there any criticism in the Australian publications of what was going on at all? So most of the criticism was actually taking place back in the UK. Uh, and so, you know, you read The Economist, at the, you know, at the time, the, the, the London Times, they were pushing back against this. Uh, they were interviewing uh, British bankers who had gone out to Australia for visits. Uh, and, and when they came back and they were describing the, the scenes of frenzy that they saw. Uh, there was only really one journalist in, in Australia at the time who was pushing back against uh, this. And uh, this was a, a muckraker journalist. Uh, he was trying to catch out the politicians who uh, were up to no good uh, in, in the middle of all of this. But he was really the only person. And because he was a muckraker journalist, not a lot of attention was paid to him at mm -hmm. the time of the, of the property boom. You pointed out that the, the technical change that the banks got to get this going was they could borrow, they could lend on land, which obviously just creates more liquidity to the point of your, um, your bubble triangle. Um, and then, you know, you had the, I think you point out there were two interest rate cuts in 1887 from 6 to 5% in January of that year. And then again, from 5 to 4%. I mean, just to fathom going from 6 to 4% 
on rates, uh, w- I think would fuel anything, wouldn't it? Uh, totally. Given given the so those rates may seem high to us today, living in a, in a low interest rate environment, but that was a mm-hmm. huge interest rate cut uh, that was coordinated by the banks in Australia at the time, and you know. As you say, uh, call the, the big deal was that the politicians removed the one remaining piece of legislation that was holding these banks back, and that was the fact that they couldn't lend uh, against land uh, as a form of collateral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as they removed that, that's when this this whole thing then begins to to unwind. Um, and you know the system just goes crazy because there's so much money floating into the property sector. Well, and, and you guys did a great job explaining that um, it was kind of the, the property development companies were really leveraged squared. They were, you know, they, they borrowed most of the money to buy the land and then they would turn around and they would be providing leverage to the investors. Can, can you explain how they would sell that to the investors? So the, the investors would come in uh, <laughs> and put down a small down payment. Uh, they then would borrow from so the property company itself was part bank part developer mm-hmm. uh, and so these property companies were raising money from depositors in australia but from also from uh, depositors in, in in the uk and so as i said a really bad combination uh, so so that was that the, the property companies themselves were extremely highly leveraged because they were essentially being funded through uh this uh you know this um, these deposits coming from 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 mainly from the UK, uh, and also the property company, the shareholders of these these um, property companies, they were really attractive to shareholders because you only had to put down a small down payment on your shares. So let's say the the share was ten dollars, you only had to put in one dollar uh, to get your shares in the company. So you also had leverage there. So you 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 had leverage cubed uh, to some extent in, in this bubble. Well, and you pointed out, I think that the commonality was uh, the the railway mania had the same thing where you didn't have to put up all the money. You just put a small, uh, you know, effectively a, de- a deposit on the price, uh, which always creates, you know, margin issues. Um, the consequences of the Australian land boom, you talked about the, the price destruction in houses. What did it do to the banking system itself? So, yeah, so in terms of the banking system, uh, as I said, you know, half of the banks collapsed. That's about half of, and half of the banking assets collapsed. Uh, so the state governments in uh, Victoria and New South Wales had to implement a series of bank holidays, uh, allow bank recapitalizations. It, it took the banking system a long time to get back to where it was and back to the, so the lending channels had all been, uh, been dissipated with these collapses. And so it, it takes a credit system in Australia two decades uh, to actually re- recover. Uh, from this and, and and of course it now means that, that these banks are now regulated uh, after sure. uh, after this collapse you guys pointed out that they also guaranteed 50% of the deposits uh, in government notes which had 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 a government ever provided any kind of deposit insurance like that before uh, oh yeah so, so so this this is something that has had happened in in other countries uh, but because this was so extreme and the collapse so large, this is the first time we ever see this sort of uh, government intervention to this scale taking place. Sure. And obviously they did it in government notes, which um, not that I'm a conspiracy theorist, but if you pay out government notes, you can always print more. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's always incentive structures. 
Um, so let's let's pivot, uh, and I think the last that we'll have time for is, um, and I, I and I apologize to Will, um, not knowing that his work was specialized on this, but I call it the most adorable bubble of all time, the British bicycle mania. Um, it just sounds so cute, quaint, almost Dutch. You know, you're just you know riding your bike along the the fjord. Um, uh, can can you guys give us the background on what was going on at the time in Britain? Um, and, and what your framework t- uh, would teach our, our listeners and the readers of your book about this bubble. Right. So the, the economic background is essentially that Britain was uh, do- doing reasonably well. Uh, this was, uh, the 1890s was a very uh, fertile environment for bubbles. You had historically low interest rates for the time. And uh, this is also uh, at around the same time or just after the Australian land boom is happening. So a lot of the factors that made it easy for um, Australian companies to raise money in Britain uh, also applied for bicycle companies. Um, uh, you have much more liberal laws than you had in, say, 1720 or in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and you also have very low shared denominations for the first time. You have, well, not, not for the first time because uh, there had been, um, you know, low denominated shares for a long time, but this was then they started to become the standard. Uh, previously, uh, you would have had a lot of companies with a share of uh, 100 pounds, which ruled out pretty much all of the middle and working classes. With the British bicycle mania, you have uh, one pound shares, uh, which are much more affordable to a much wider range of society. Uh, so it's essentially a, a, a fertile investing environment, uh, particularly by historical standards. This is when the, this um, long-term uh, increase in marketability um, uh, had, had moved quite a long way. What happens with bicycles is that there's this transformation from the types of bicycle that most people would think of when you imagine a 19th century bicycle. Uh, so your very large front wheel, very small back wheel, made entirely of metal, usually wrought iron, very uncomfortable to ride because there's no pneumatic tires, there's no real suspension. British roads aren't really a good match for this. There's plenty of potholes at the time, uh, so it was very common for cyclists to uh, flip over the handlebars and land on their head and because the front wheel was so large they had a long way to fall so they're really quite dangerous the the, the most comfortable model the most successful model was nicknamed the bone shaker which gives you an idea of how impractical these uh, machines actually were and what happens in the 1890s is you get this pretty sudden transformation to the modern bicycle uh, the bicycle which it becomes popular in 1896. Looks pretty much exactly the same as a modern bicycle. You know, the, the diamond frame is invented, so it looks the same as a modern bicycle. You have the pneumatic tire, and this causes their popularity to explode. So uh, you see um, all of these qualitative reports of lots of people, particularly uh, women, riding their bicycles around. Uh, the, the streets of British cities um, for the first time. And what you see then at the same time is that there's this uh, excitement around bicycle companies as an investment because those which already existed have suddenly started to do really well. You had the, the, the pneumatic tyre company, which later became the Dunlop company. Uh, they, they were established with, with a nominal capital of £300,000. And whenever the, this 
company um, takes off, uh, they're bought out for three million pounds. So if you'd invested in that company in the space of just a few years, uh, you've earned this you know, 1000% return. And this attracts all kinds of investment. And what we see, which I think is a common story in bubbles, is that uh, prices essentially rise too much. The companies are good investments initially. They're making a lot of money and the initial rise in prices is a correction. But this brings in all kinds of speculators. Uh, it brings the market itself to national attention. People start day trading, just buying and selling these very frequently, uh, essentially as a hobby. And that's when the price starts to become you know, uh, too high to the point where th these investments are going to go badly wrong. When you point out the this Hooli character that shows up with Dunlop, can you can you explain what what he did in the transaction he pulled off? Right. So Ernest Hooli was a promoter. Uh, his job was to um, buy buy a company and then sell it, uh, which is how he put it himself during his bankruptcy proceedings. How, how does this work? Well, the idea is that uh, he's essentially taking it public. So he identifies a a small bicycle firm which maybe doesn't produce very many bicycles, uh, but has a, has a good name potentially. Um, and he buys it and he then floats it on the stock market. So in the meantime, he will have paid off lots of newspapers to run these pieces talking about how great an investment it is. They've got word out as far and wide as he possibly can. Just tried to attract as many people as he can to, to the, the company. And for a long time, he succeeds. So he's buying companies like, like the, the pneumatic tire company. I say he bought that out for three million pounds. He ends up floating it on the stock market for five million pounds, which is well, the Dunlop company is one of the company is one of the companies which does well long term. Most of the companies he promotes don't. Uh, so uh, that that's his biggest achievement. That that's his biggest one off profit. But uh, a lot of the other companies he promoted, he was making a much larger markup and generally giving investors a much worse deal. And your writing uh, kind of begs the question of when will the season for that business come where it has the most value? Because obviously Dunlop didn't end up in the bike business. It ended up in the car business. And I think you you uh, had a small note in there mentioning that investors had to take losses for quite a few years as that transformation took place. Right, exactly. Uh, so I haven't worked it out exactly, but with all of the discounting, it may be that Dunlop wasn't a spectacular investment, even though it becomes this global company, because it takes a long time for them to really take off. Uh, they make pneumatic tires and develop this reputation for making uh, very high quality pneumatic tires, but it really peaks much later whenever all of these pneumatic tires are acquired for motorcycles and cars. And this wasn't predictable at the time, obviously. It, all we knew was that this, all we would have known was that this company was finding it very easy to raise a lot of money to the point where you would wonder, you know, is this a good investment? But on a societal level, uh, it's it, it was useful. To your point of usefulness, um, it, it, can this be analogously looked at? I mean, we've always had food delivery in the Western world. Um, we never had it at the ease of a, of a, you know, an iPhone app or a cell phone app. Um, do you kind of you kind of look at you know the what we've seen recently? It's useful, 
um, it's used, is it novel? <laughs> um, in other words, is it going to you know take progress a lot further forward? Um, you know, we still ride bikes today, um, but what these technologies were actually used for were were different in the end, and and the economic consequences to get there were, were you know much stranger than we would have expected. Right. Yeah, that that's an interesting comparison. Um, I wonder when I look at these companies, particularly a company like Uber, say, which is also branching into food delivery, which mm -hmm. is losing a lot of money, but providing a lot of service. And I wonder, mm -hmm. is the end game here that this company uh, goes bankrupt and its main effect was to provide subsidized travel for the whole world for a period sure. of 15 years? Um, yeah. You really don't know uh, what the social effect is going to be. Um, which, you know, I, I think what we're really trying to do with this useful argument is just shift the dial because most people think of bubbles as just something negative. Sure. Uh, when if you, you know, take a holistic view, look at all of its effects, um, maybe that's not necessarily the case. Well, I know if we called Domino's Pizza right now and said, hey, a bunch of people taught you how to use an app, has that made your business a lot better? We would know it has. I mean, that's there's no question. So I, I, I the, but the in our lifetime, are we going to really look and say, "Gosh, Domino's got so much better during that bubble"? Um, I, I don't know. Um, you guys explained that interest rates went lower from 1894 to 1896. I think it was two percent. Was this just kind of the classic watershed, you know, kindling for this bubble? This was a new record in the UK. This is the, the lowest interest rate the UK ha, had ever experienced. And it was actually part of a wider phenomenon. There's something called the Great Depression, uh, which economic historians uh, think about as happening from the late 1870s into the 1890s, where the world economy is, 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 is depressed and you know, interest rates are low. Um, and so really, we have these really low interest rates in the 1890s that, that, that feed into, as well as already said, the, the Australian episode, but particularly feed into the UK because all of a sudden you get this reaching for yield where investors are not satisfied with the, the, the low yield that they're getting on government securities. Uh, they're reaching into riskier securities. And so, and so bicycles come along and this, this, this is a very attractive investment for uh, investors reaching for yield. We, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remind, my, remind myself of the order, but um, if you, I've looked, we've looked at long-term charts of interest rates in the late 19th century is, I mean, it's, they dove and obviously we considered that the Gilded Age, right? Wealth grew um, while rates were low, which is not shocking. That's called interest rate theory. Um, but I pointed out because Europeans were doing all kinds of stuff like trying to go to the North Pole, the South Pole, <laughs> and uh, the top of the world uh, with like K2, for example, and it isn't kind of analogously interesting. We're trying to go to the moon while interest rates have been really low too. Um, what, what would you say were the economic consequences? In other words, I, I think you tipped it this earlier, but what was the damage tied to the fallout from the bicycle mania? So the, the damage is very localized. Um, the, the bubble itself is fairly localized. Most of these companies are based in the West Midlands. Um, and we see some evidence that West Midlands uh, experiences a, a localized recession uh, after the, the bicycle industry uh, well the bicycle industry goes into a recession which is unsurprising but it doesn't show up at all uh, in national figures or even outside of the west midlands it doesn't seem to make much of a dent 
And for the, the reason for this, the main reason for this is simply that the banks aren't involved. The banks are very conspicuous about the fact that they're not involved. Um, that this isn't long after uh, the, the Bearings failure, the original Bearings failure. Uh, mm -hmm. So people are quite conscious of the idea that banks can fail. And the banks are repeatedly issuing statements saying, we don't hold very much bicycle stocks. We are not exposed to this. Yeah, well, and just to give listeners a feel, um, we're only touching three of, of the periods that that uh, John and Will get at in their book and in their framework. The other ones they deal on are the, the first emerging markets bubble. They talk about the railway mania that we, we, we mentioned earlier, the, tw the 1920s, uh, Japan in the 80s, the dot-com bubble. I also, I, I thank you for actually uh, saying something that I don't think most people below 45 actually know, which is that uh, during your chapter on the subprime bubble, the central bank and the economists at the time, and even Wall Street, they thought we were beyond recessions in the future, which was an interesting argument being made at the time. And I, I guess I, I just really thank you guys for actually bringing up that people believed that garbage so much. Yeah, so, so even the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, in, in the UK, who then went on to be Prime Minister, uh, Gordon Brown, uh, mm -hmm. He was famous for saying uh, no more boom and bust uh, was how he was running the economy. And so we were all lulled in, so, you know, the wider society, policymakers, central bankers were lulled into this uh, new state that things were, were never going to have crises again. Um, so, yeah, that, that was, as you say, for people under 45, that's maybe a, a revelation. Exactly. And very dangerous. Um, we all know to cover our head and put our put our protective gear on when that happens. Um, you know, this has been a ton of fun. And I I mean, if you guys are picking up on this, I could go on for hours with you guys, um, which I'll probably have to do over pints sometime. But is there anything from your book that we haven't talked about that um, that you think needs to be mentioned or, or any pieces of the discussion that we that we've missed? I, I suppose. You know, one of the things that, that we, we kind of wrestle with in, in the book mm -hmm. is this idea of being able to predict bubbles or being able to spot bubbles when, when, when you're in the middle of them. And, you know, we, we point out, you know, what's the role of, of, of the press in, in all of this. And really, you have to take what the press say with, with a pinch of salt, or what the news media says with a, with a pinch of salt, and ask what are their incentives? Mm -hmm. You know, are, have the incentives to engage in, uh, you know, actually uh, be purveyors of truth, exposers of financial folly, or have the incentives to engage in, in, in venal journalism, uh, or are, are they, you know, are they, do they rely so heavily on the advertising revenue that's come from, uh, the, you know, the bubble that they're not going to call it? Um, so, so that's something we, we, we kind of wrestle with. How do we know if you're in the middle of a bubble? And this is why we keep coming back to the bubble triangle to say, okay, you know, are we in a bubble today? And we've been talking about this uh, since the book came out over 18 months ago when people are talking about crypto. Uh, you know, and, and we've been applying the bubble triangle to, to, to crypto and trying to understand whether it has the same sort of uh, force. And, and, you know, Will and I have had back and forth conversations with one another. Uh, and We've been saying that crypto is a bubble because it's got all, all the aspects of, of the bubble triangle uh, were, were present. Yeah. When I, and I think we use it more of the picture of what's going on in euphoric attitudes and speculation. Um, in other words, I, I agree. We, you could probably look at it as a standalone bubble. 
But the question is, is it actually part of a broader, more complex story than that? And, and that's how that's how we kind of look at that. Um, the, the term the term that I often think about with bubbles, and I think Will came pretty close to saying this earlier, is the word gestalt, which is obviously a German word. And it's where the organized whole, you know, is perceived to be more than the sum of the parts. Right. Um, I think we'll call it a circular argument. Right. That's that, that's what I think typically, um, you know, bubbles tend to exhibit is in the minds and the psychology of the people participating. It's far bigger than the actual numbers are. And I think of in today's you know, discussions, the word TAM. Right. Well, what's the total addressable market? <laughs> it could be 50 or 100 years away, but it just sounds so exciting. So I, I really appreciate both of your guys' time today. This has been, you know, a, a lot of fun. John and William's book, Boom and Bust, does a wonderful job of explaining the, the, that bubbles do not follow a simple pattern, but yet have a framework for understanding complexities to each of these episodes of Mania that we've talked about. They teach you about some bubbles you may not be aware of from history that I think are insightful for investors. You need to go get this. We've always had a, a copy of uh, Galbraith's book, A Short History of Financial Euphoria here. I would put it right next to it. You need to get this book. We were blessed to have uh, William and John write this and, and be with us today. For our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.